Hey, hi everybody. Welcome back to our So Far So Good live series with Propylene Russ now. Uh, if you're wondering why uh, we're coming back on a Wednesday live stream, uh, the main reason is because we are prepping for our phase two opening. So uh, on weekends, usually what we do is that our, our team will be very packed with uh, all our viewings and stuff like that. So we decided to shift it back to a Wednesday first, having a lunch chat with uh, our special guest back every week here. So uh, if you are first time tuning with us, my name is Melvin Lim, co-founder of Property Lim Brothers. And uh, thank you for tuning with us on this live uh, show. Uh, this is being at right now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And usually what we do is that we will uh, do a replay episode on this on the following week. So if you have missed today's live show, you can head on to next week on any of our platforms. You will be able to locate the show. Right. So uh, today we have a very special guest, um, a lawyer with us, a very young uh, lawyer, uh, young and experienced, I would say. So uh, her name is Sarah Thomas, and uh, I'm going to invite her up to the show shortly, but maybe just to give you a brief introduction on why she's here today. So today we're going to talk about um, a, a sensitive topic, and uh, this is a sensitive topic because we're going to talk about a divorce uh, and what is uh, technically um, so-called, usually what, what are the things that will happen to, to property um, distribution matters when it comes to a divorce situation uh, for a family. So uh, we think that is an is a topic that um, sometimes along our past 14 years, we have um, so-called come across um, families that, that were unfortunately in such situations. So I think for those of you out there who wants to find a little bit more um, technical details and uh, want to understand on a broad basis like what are some of the things that you need to consider uh, when um, there is such a situation that happens to family. So Sarah has been an expert that specializes in family matters. Um, she um, has been a lawyer since 2012 so that's about eight years experience and she has uh, mainly specialized uh, in divorce situations and family matters. She is currently also um, uh, serving as a, a mediator at uh, Singapore Mediation Center. And uh, right now she runs her own firm, uh, Sarah May Thomas LLC. Uh, she's also a dual qualified solicitor in Singapore and Australia. And guess what? She is one of uh, the very rare lawyers in Singapore that has her own podcast show. So it's called The Legal Eagle. So after this, I'm going to put a link right down below. You can head over to her website, her podcast to, to um, listen to her other topics that she talks about on Spotify and stuff like that. All right, so why don't we have uh, Sarah on stream with us. Sarah, hi. Hi, Melvin. I Good have some technical you. difficulties with my audio. <laughs> the joys of working from home. Right. I'm can sorry about that. I can, right. perfectly. Okay, great, great. Uh, it's great to have you, Sarah. And uh, how have you been? Thank I mean, you. How, how's things uh, working from home? It's been good. Uh, well, it was a, a bit of a shift for all of us our lawyers. Um, but the good thing is that all my files are paperless, so I've been able to work from wherever. Um, so I was in lockdown in Australia, so I was working from home there and then lockdown here. Um, so it's been fine. Uh, just a little bit of adjustments right. here and there, but it's been, right. it's been good overall. Right. So, yeah. so you, were, you were in Australia like a couple of months back? In Australia, yes. And I, I was, I arrived in Australia to set, settle some property matters, and uh, I arrived the day they closed the borders. So I had Whoa. to self-isolate for two weeks. Right, yeah. right. Okay, great. And and um, your firm, um, are, are you guys allowed to operate under Phase One right now? 
Or you have to wait for yes, phase but two. I'm I'm getting everyone to work from home. I'm taking a more cautious approach. I think right. it's better since we're able to to manage from home. We're we're just going to take it one week at a time. Right. Yeah. So so uh, I still remember yeah. like about two to three weeks back, we we had an interview. We had a um someone, uh, a lady lawyer as well, uh, from Simon yeah. uh, yeah. and Partners, and then she was like sharing with with us like you know for a good 10 over years the usual practice for lawyers is always to meet their clients in the office and um mm-hmm. that, that is that has been the usual setting but even now um everybody has to change so they're they're all yeah. like meeting their clients on zoom and stuff like that so has it been that yeah. for you i mean over the past, past it has. Weeks, right Yes, over the past couple of months, we've been doing Zoom calls and even our hearings, our court hearings are over Zoom. Um, wow. So what the court has done in the family courts is that they've adjourned all the urge, uh, they've adjourned non-urgent and life-threatening matters until after the circuit breaker. Um, right. And all those that contain like property, major property disputes with like life and liberty, those were heard over Zoom. So that was a um, interesting uh, development and um, basic case conference are just, they call you on your mobile phone. So when you're getting a judge calling on your mobile phone, it's, <laughs> it's a really a new world that you're entering into. Wow. Wow. And uh, it's, it's interesting to see how things are evolving. It's like, it's like overnight, everybody has to adopt this yep. digital platforms like instantly. Yes. I mean, even for like government servants and stuff like that. So, um, we uh, are very, very, very happy that you are with us today uh, because we understand mm. based on your background, you specialize in uh, a certain field, uh, which uh, I think in, in the broad term of, of the legal aspect is called family matters, right? So uh, maybe share with us uh, a little bit about your background, like how long have you been doing this and what is your passion mm. in, the, in, the, in the legal world? Because I understand that you are also yeah. one of the first to have your own legal podcast in Singapore. That's correct. That's yeah, correct. That's fantastic. I've been to your Spotify. I check out your episodes uh, since last oh, year. Wonderful. And I, I think you've yes. been adding like great value to to, to your audience. So Thank maybe you. I'll share with us. Yeah. So I uh, just a little bit about me. I qualified to practice in Australia, in Melbourne, uh, because I spent uh, a good 15 years there. I did my uh, high school there, university. I qualified in mainly civil litigation. So I was uh, involved in fighting for the, the rights of workers who are hurt, so compensation for them. And then I moved to Singapore about five years ago. And that's when I got called to the bar here, the say about two months after I moved back to Singapore, um, because it's common law jurisdiction. So uh, Australia and Singapore share the same common law. Uh, which is uh, the UK English uh, history of of law. Um, So it's very similar in terms of its principles and all of that. So when I moved here, I uh, got into family law, which I I now I I see as a calling. Uh, So when we say family law, it's like an umbrella term for divorce. So that's the bread and butter work that I do, divorce, separation of families. Uh, we, We do adoption. We do mental capacity uh, matters. So if someone loses their mind uh, and they need to appear in divorce proceedings, those kind of things, uh, wills, probate. I also do like children's uh, justice, juvenile justice for children, crimes that are committed underage, um, all under the purview of the family court and the youth court. So uh, that's in terms of the work that I do. Uh, I am also like you, an avid podcaster. So I have The Legal Eagle, uh, which, as you mentioned, I started last year. So I just interview people from all around the world. So uh, it's uh, it's a fun journey. Uh, And uh, yes, I believe I am uh, 
the first legal podcast to be hosted by a lawyer in Singapore. So it's it's very fun. It's a, it's a new adventure for me, and uh, that's a little bit about myself. Right, that's great, and uh, I think this this um uh this this trend is is across all industries. I mean, coming out to add value, uh, which is giving like free content, which is what like you're what you're doing right now with your podcast, and I I think it's great because. Um, it's, it's such a great platform that you can also meet with different people uh, like yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, and then we can learn so many different things from a wide range of topics. So uh, today we want to talk specifically about uh, property distrib- distribution matters uh, whenever it comes to a, a divorce situation in a family. So um, definitely you are the expert that I think a lot of our listeners want to, to hear on. So uh, maybe just to just to start on, like you know, why why do, why do you decide to specialize in in family matters, like um, since a couple of years ago? Yeah, so I I initially um, resisted family law like the plague. I because being a Christian, yeah. I I was very anti divorce, and I was like, why would I get involved in family law? Um, but what happened was uh, I was doing civil litigation, as I mentioned. And when I moved to Singapore, I was also doing that. And um, a partner approached me and said, Jeremy, I think you, you know, you have empathy. And in, in family law, you need empathy because, yes, you might be dividing properties and you might be talking about wealth and all of that. But you're dealing with a family that has broken down. You're dealing with real life and emotions and history and children and grandparents and, and the, the whole family unit. Um, mm. And so that's when she said, why don't you do both? Try civil litigation and try family law. Uh, and that's when I started family law. And I realized that this was quickly becoming an area of law that I started becoming passionate about because mm. uh, you have to have empathy, as I said, and you're dealing with um, showing light in very dark places. So people right. are, I think their statistics done, uh, divorce is one of the second most traumatic things that can happen to a person in their life, aside from death um, and loss. So uh, that's that's how I got started in, in um, family law, actually. Right, right. Yeah. And there's no looking back. Right. And um, yeah, I, I, li- I like the, the, the fact that uh, you say that this being... Um, specialized in this field really need a lot of empathy and uh, you're dealing with like the family having the ripple effect um, affecting the children the grandparents and stuff like that okay so Sarah um, enlighten yeah. us like um, there, there are some important terms to understand and I think one of the, one of the important terms when it comes to a divorce situation is that um, we want to understand what is being defined as a matrimonial property so uh, why is knowing um, the, the term matrimonial property important during a divorce situation relating to property distribution. Maybe you can we can start from here. Yep. So what uh, what happens is when there's a divorce, um, the court. So the question was, what is a matrimonial property? Yeah. Yeah. And why is it important to understand? Okay. So when a divorce occurs uh, in Singapore, it's a two step process. Um, so first, the marriage has to be dissolved. So there's one, irretrievably, the marriage has to have been broken down. So uh, the judges will look at one of five grounds. So someone has behaved unreasonably, uh, they've been separated for three years, or they've been separated for four years if nobody has consented, Um, and then there's been adultery or desertion. So once that uh, has been decided, you go on to step two, which is what you call the ancillary matters. So that's when you look at issues like property division. 
how are we going to divide the surplus wealth within the family, uh, within the marriage, uh, really? And the concept of what is a marriage property, it's called a matrimonial property, is important because uh, if you have like gifts or inheritance or things like that, uh, it usually falls outside the pool of a a matrimonial property. And uh, that's why it's important to define what is actually a matrimonial asset. Right. So... Um, in the event of a, a divorce, what are the, the properties that will be taken into consideration in terms of distribution? Will it only be the matrimonial property or what about like properties that has been gifted to uh, or inherited by, by a spouse A or spouse B? So what, what are going to happen to the, the rest of the properties? Yeah, so what happens is at the dissolution of the marriage, when the marriage has dissolved, uh, usually we use that as a point, the cutoff point for all the properties from day one of the marriage until day last, the last day of the marriage. Yeah, so we look at, we pool in all the the assets, and that includes uh, the matrimonial home, your bank accounts, cars, any assets, so insurance, trusts, bonds, all of those things, um, if there has been a property that's been inherited. So, for example, let, let's use the example, Mr. A has inherited this um, landed property or, or HDB flat from his grandfather, for example, and he gifts it to his wife. Yeah, so it's an interspousal gift. If he hasn't really, um, I think usually the question of a gift is important because there are two concepts. One concept is when there's been um, exertion of effort. Have I spent effort in improving on this inheritance uh, property? Whether it's a a property or money used towards a property, have I exerted effort? Now, if there's been an exertion of effort on my part, then, of course, that should fall within the pool of assets. But if there's no kind of, it's a pure interspousal gift, then usually... um, then usually it won't, uh, I mean, from a third party, then it usually won't fall in the, the pool. But there are arguments to be made on either side. So this is where lawyers come in and we make submissions on why it should be in the pool, why it should be outside the pool. So right. that's that's important with gifts and inheritance. Right. So but what you're saying is that uh, from the, the point of resolution up to the last day of the marriage, Technically, all the assets that are being owned by both parties will be counted as the pool for consideration, yes. right? Right. Okay. And um, maybe maybe we can come from um, uh, a more specific situation. So, for example, let's say if if uh, a couple, they have, uh, maybe we talk about HDB properties first. So, let's say they have a HDB property and um, they're going through their interim judgment and then waiting for their final judgment and stuff like that. So usually when do they need to sell their property and is there a time period that, um, let's say after they have received their, their final judgment, uh, the court order, like what is the time frame yeah. to, to sell? Yeah, so usually HDB will only act after final judgment until uh, after they get the final judgment, and that's when um, that's when HDB gets involved. Uh, it can even be a situation where there's been because um, you have so many permutations of how you can transfer the property, right? So, for example, uh, the court might order husband transfer the HDB flat to wife with no refunds to himself or with partial refunds or uh, they sell it in the open market 
and then divide the proceeds 50-50. Whatever the decision of the court is, it usually happens after final judgment. Then that's when you start the ball rolling right. with HDB. Right. right. Yeah. So there, there are different forms of permutations as in how the judge wants to to divide mm -hmm. uh, the way that the property is being, being shared, right? So um, uh, what about if, just like you mentioned about like, um, sometimes they might they might order spouse A to spouse B with no refunds and stuff like that. What about like, if it's like a, a normal situation where it is like a 50-50 kind of uh, division uh, once the property is being mm -hmm. sold? Because we, we understand that there are usually a few ways to do it. Sometimes it is like um, we take the sale price, we take the sale price, we less off all CPF contributions first before the division at 50-50. But sometimes it's, yeah. it's, we take the sale price, we divide 50-50 and individually uh, you guys go and uh, return back to your CPF refund. So there's, there's a clear distinction of the, the sequencing, right? Because it affects uh, the cash proceeds at the end of the day. So usually um, what are the common uh, so-called distribution methods or it really depends on case-by-case -case basis? Yeah, so I'm going to give you a standard lawyer answer. Uh, it's fact-specific. <laughs> it right. really depends on the facts of the case. Um, but what normally happens, say if there's like a sale of uh, a HDB flat, right? Mm. Um, what normally happens is you take your sale price, your whatever market value it is, and then you minus off the mortgage, the whatever outstanding mortgage, and then the the costs of, you know, the conveyancing costs and all of that. And then you divide the, the net sales proceeds. You can have your, you return your CPF from those sale proceeds. Parties return it back. Mm. I mean, to their mm. own. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Right. And um, so uh, when, when it comes to like HDB properties, right, what happens if, let's say, for example, um, there is, um, let's say, spouse A, um, has um, uh, another private property uh, under their own name and uh, spouse B also has another private property under their own name. And so, for example, let's say this family has three properties and uh, HGB is co-owned, but um, each of them went ahead to purchase another private properties under their own name each, um, probably during the process of trying to build their, their property portfolio. So uh, will all these three properties be all counted uh, into the pool as well for consideration. Yes. If it was acquired, anything acquired during the course of the marriage is a matrimonial asset. Right. So as long as it's so what, acquired. Yeah. So as long as it's acquired during the course of the marriage, it is it forms within the pool. Now, what happens with division is usually in long marriages, the court would look at two concepts. One is direct financial contribution and one is indirect contribution. Um, so when I say the court, I also want to put a disclaimer that a lot of um, divorces actually happen outside the court. So if parties decide, okay, I've bought this landed property here, you've bought this landed property here, parties to keep uh, their own properties in their own name, that also happens. And then the HDB flat can be divided according to what they feel is just and fair. If they can't decide and agree on anything, that's when you go to court. And that's when this exercise of this arithmetic exercise, if you so, if you call it, of div dividing the different assets um, according to the percentage right, will happen. Right. So, so um, 
usually how how many percentage of of divorce cases in Singapore are settled out of court based on your knowledge? More than fifty percent. More than fifty percent, right? So it is basically more than fifty. Right, it's basically mediated on a private basis with the lawyers and stuff. Uh, well, when I say out of court, so a lot of uh, meet a lot of divorces happen uh, set uh, get settled at mediation stage. I think the statistics are like fifty percent plus plus. In terms mm. of not even going to the door of the court, I I don't really know the statistics, but it mm. is. I mean, there are a lot of um, divorces settled outside. Uh, the door of court. So what parties will do is they they mediate between themselves. Sometimes they involve uh, lawyers. They don't have to, but sometimes they do. Um, and they just do a fast track divorce proceeding, which includes all the financial arrangements uh, and how they're going to divide the surplus wealth in the family. And that's the fastest way you can go about a divorce. Right. Yeah. So um, you know, Sarah, in in recent years. Um, because of uh, the introduction of additional bias stamp duty and stuff. And property has been a huge thing for Singaporeans always. I mean, <laughs> I think because everybody knows that, you know, uh, by by uh, investing in property assets, Singapore is stable and stuff like that. So um, with all the ABS that's in place, uh, of course, there's, there's a, a wide um, um, so-called term that is being practiced right now. It's like a lot of families, they like to practice decoupling of their property. So... Uh, when they do decoupling, um, they will usually uh, start to acquire properties under one name each. And the the very so-called popular uh, practice right now is that, you know, husband will own one property fully under their name, uh, wife will own one property fully under their name, or if they were to have a joint property, they will decouple one name out, and then the husband or the wife can then proceed to acquire another property. So yeah. in their family household, they can then have two properties. So it's, it's been widely practiced for over the past years, ever since ABSD came into play. And um, what what is the, the um, have you been receiving questions like from your, from um, your maybe your, your clients or your friends, like, you know, uh, is decoupling advisable? Um, does it play a role when a divorce, uh, an unfortunate event like divorce happens? Or based on what you have just shared just now, uh, whether decouple or no decouple, they're all counted as the pool of assets that will be considered. So what, what is your advice? Well, if a client came to me, I mean, of course, mm, I'm caveating everything with your cat, your, your facts must be, you know, based on the facts, specific facts of the case. But really, if one party was getting uh, the better end of the stick, I would say don't. Um, because if one property is 3 million and the other one is, you know, 300,000, then, um, and usually it's the wife that is the losing party, you know, so why, why would you do that if, if, if it's not fair, if it's fair and, and it's an equal distribution, because the courts are really all about just and equitable for both parties. So if it makes sense for the parties, if it's fair, and if, if it, um, before the eyes of the court, if it's fair, then, then it really is, it's fine. But it really depends on who's losing out. If someone is losing out, then that's really where the family courts come in and say, no, we have to do what is just and fair in all circumstances. Right. So, so maybe, maybe um, going to the specifics. So for example, if let's say a couple has decoupled um, and then they went on to invest in more properties, maybe over the past five years, and then unfortunately a divorce situation happens. And uh, let's say, um, uh, maybe I just reverse the role. Lah. So for example, just, just uh, spouse A, we, we, maybe we don't talk about whether it's the husband or the wife. So let's say spouse A owns a property that is 
um, two million dollars, and then spouse B owns a property that is like maybe nine hundred thousand dollars, and they have been living in uh, property A, which is a two million dollar property, and then property B is an investment property, nine hundred thousand being rented out. Um, so when they when when a divorce happens, like um, how are this being distributed? Does the court uh, look at okay because you are the sole owner of property A, which is two million, then um, you can keep this property. Then um, prop uh, property B, nine hundred thousand owned by spouse B, um, will belong to spouse B. Like, or or will there be a a cross distribution or a fair distribution? Like, how how is this being being sorted out? It's always going to be fair distribution for all cases, um, mm. unless you come up with a private agreement. So if the parties are fine with a private agreement between themselves, they can basically agree on whatever they want to. But if it mm. goes before the court, if someone owns a property in their own name and it was acquired during the course of the marriage, then it will still fall within the pool. Now, the division goes goes back to the overarching principle of how do we divide this fairly? Okay, yes, this person A contributed 100% financially towards property A and person B contributed 100% towards property B. And then they made other investments. But uh, really what the court does is they create a list of assets it's or a pool of assets and they divide, they, they look at the uh, what is called the total net worth of the pool. And then they do this exercise of, okay, if uh, if person A gets 300000 less out of their division, then maybe a lump sum payment needs to be made. So mm. that's what, that's that's really the idea of, of um, uh, the courts and how they come in is to, if parties are going to keep their own respective properties, then there still needs to be a payout by way of wife maintenance or just because um, husbands can't get maintenance. It's only wives that can get maintenance. But if one party is getting less um, out of the pool in one property, then it has to be compensated elsewhere. Right. So, um uh, okay, so based on based on this explanation, then going back to the previous question, just now when you you mentioned when we talk about decoupling, so um, you say that um, okay, so so personally, will you recommend decoupling? Because just now you mentioned that sometimes it's always like uh, if the wife is getting a property that's three hundred thousand, and then uh, maybe the husband is getting a property that's one million. You um, based on probably what you said, you 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 think that is not really advisable or or it doesn't really matter because end of the day no at the end of the day i don't think it really matters at the end of the day um i, I you know it's not a question that i often get asked because usually what happens is uh, spouses buy properties together and usually have it in joint tenancy uh, right. or tenancy in common um, right. and if parties have properties even if it's their own name it still gets lumped into the pool Right. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many properties one spouse, if one has 10, 10 properties and the other has nothing, it still gets put in. So whether right. or not you're uh, the sole owner uh, at law, uh, that's when equitable principles come in and you divide it fairly. Yeah. Right. Okay. So um, then how, how does the, um, uh, are there any additional rules that come into play? For example, uh, let's say if situation one, the husband owns 10 properties, the wife owns one property in her name, uh, versus situation B, the wife owns 10 property 
and the hubby owns one property. So will it still be equally um, so-called distributed based on uh, if it's let's if let's say we are talking about uh, a mutual uh, kind of like a divorce situation and stuff like that, are there any other factors that comes into play in this type of two scenarios? Yeah. So what actually happens is um, the court, all parties, even lawyers, if it's a mutual agreement, they always use these principles, direct and indirect contributions. That's mm. number one. So actually, uh, there's two large principles. Uh, at large, we have two principles. One is the structured approach and one is the um, the, the non-structured approach. The in, I think it's called the integrated approach, the broad brush approach. Um, right. So basically, the structured approach is um, mainly for dual income uh, families, but not for single income families. So how they do it is you... For property A, so we categorize it by properties, yeah? So property A, uh, wife has contributed 90% of mm. financially of this property right. and husband has contributed 10%. Then you right. have a second layer. So then you come up with the ratios, 10 and 90. And then the second layer of indirect contributions. Who has been the one looking after the children if their children are involved? Has it been mom or has it been dad? If mom right. has done 90% um, or dad has done 90%, then you do what is called an averaging of those two ratios. So right. that's what you call a structured approach. Not so great for um, single income households. Single income households where one party is working and the other party is not, uh, you use what is called a broad brush approach. Mm. Can we look at the principle broadly? What you know, what has been the contribution financially of, of the husband and the wife and what has been the indirect contributions. So that's really what lawyers um, have regard to. That's really what the court has regard to when we're trying to divide um, these however many properties, no matter how many are in one person's name, it is still a matrimonial asset. Right, right. Hearing that, I think is 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 really not an easy job. Uh, when you do family matters, because there are so many points of consideration when it comes to every case, right? Uh, every case is different, and right. it I think it doesn't help when parties are hiding assets. That's I think that's the most tricky part where uh, parties have asset properties in other countries and they're siphoning out monies and depleting the matrimonial pool. I think that can be very tricky, and that's probably the trickiest part of divorce when you're tracing like a private investigator you're trying to trace where the, the property went and where the monies went and in which property it was purchased overseas so right. yeah right so um coming back to a, a one property kind of situation so for example i mean we sometimes we, we get this this question quite a fair bit it's like um some clients will ask like is there any situation that um after after my, my divorce is settled, uh, I can retain my property. Um, will my ex-spouse allow that? So in what kind of situations can one party retain the property? Like, um, yeah, what, what, what is your advice? Usually, the party can only retain the property if it's like inheritance. Um, hmm. It's like a pure inheritance. So it won't really, it shouldn't really be part of it unless the that property was... Uh, given and then the parties lived in that property then it makes it different or they renovated and improved on the property um, and sometimes the court if it, if it goes to court the court might feel it's just for that person to retain that particular property 
because um, of all the other surplus wealth um, being divided in the in the in the family. So, for example, if we have a HDB flat, um, but then other properties involved, and uh, the HDB flat gets transferred solely to one spouse, it's because of the the wider context of the marriage. What other mm. properties are involved? What other finances are involved? That's usually mm. the two situations. Right. How about if let's say there's only one one property? Let's say, let's say the husband and wife they only own one HDB flat. Um, mm. Can one party retain the HDB flat by buying over the 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 CPF? Yes. Like, so so that's pretty common, right? Yes, it is. Where they where one party just buys over the share and then you know um, the, the whatever it's fifty percent or whether it's thirty percent, it's whether it's by agreement or by uh, dictation of the court. Yeah, right. that's pretty common. Where they buy pretty... buy over the share. Right. So yeah. and, and and I I presume that is also pretty common for private properties as well. I mean, especially when it comes to the the singular own state property, right? So um, how about like um. Are there any special uh, so-called blind spots when it comes to the di division of the CPF monies after the, the properties are, are, are being distributed, right? So are there any blind spots whenever it comes to, to this kind of situation in terms of the CPF that you have used towards your properties? Blind spots? I can't really mm. think of any blind spots. You mean how people use the CPF monies? Right, like um, when it's, it's being um, divided back. Okay, so for example, let's say um, there's only one property involved and uh, both parties has used a lot of CPF funds for this property. Well, is it a, a, a clear given that, let's say for example, spouse A put in 400,000, spouse B put in um, 300,000, is it a given that um, the CPF funds will definitely be refunded fully after the sale of the property or actually the judge can overpower it and say that, hey, you're supposed to get back 400000 but um, I, I I need you to uh, only take back 200000 because the rest has to go to the other spouse and stuff. So, yeah, um, that, what, happens. What are, that happens. That happens, All right? Maybe you want to that elaborate happens. on that. Like, like, What are the different kind of scenarios? Well... Well, it can be because, you know, there's not enough maintenance for the wife and or there's not enough money for her, you know, in terms of the division of um, of uh, the matrimonial pool of assets. If the mm. judge feels that it is uh, just and equitable for the husband to take back less because of for whatever reason they have decided, then that's possible as well that um that he he can even transfer like there can be a within cpf the husband can transfer 100k or whatever k to the wife um and vice versa yeah that's pretty common right okay great right so um uh if you have just uh, tuned in with us i'm with uh, sarah may and uh, Sarah May is a, is a practicing lawyer specializing in family matters. She runs her own firm at Sarah May Thomas LLC and also her own podcast at The Legal Eagle. If you have any questions, uh, we still have a couple of minutes later with Sarah where we will answer any Q&A that you have. So if you are seeing us uh, from YouTube or Instagram or Facebook, do keep your questions in the comment section down below and Sarah will be happy to answer. Right, so uh, meantime, Sarah, maybe uh, just chat with us a little bit about the other aspects of um, family matters and legal advice that you provide for your clients, like other than divorce, uh, what other, uh, just now you mentioned about adoption, you mentioned about um, several other, yeah. other services. Rental, right? 
Yeah, sure. So I do um, mental capacity matters as well. So as I said, if someone loses their uh, mental faculties um, and they need to get a sponsor, a deputy, I do that kind of work. Mm. Um, I also do um, anything related to the family, really. So um, adoption, children's juvenile issues. Um, and I also do, you know, the standard wills, probate. If someone dies without a will, I do probate matters. I do letters of administration. So letters of administration if someone dies without a will and probate um, with a will. Um, and yeah, that's big. And of course, my civil litigation, which is my personal injury and motor accidents. If you you know, run a red light and you need me to write to the attorney general's chambers and do a mitigation, that's, that, that's kind of the work that I do as well. Right, right. So, uh, like over over the years, over the years, um, usually per year, um, on average, how many um like family matters uh cases do you handle per year? Um, uh, maybe not by your team, but uh, maybe by yourself singularly. How how much? How many cases do you handle? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. You know, because one year can be so different from the next, and it's not so much. Uh, quantity rather than some of the cases can go on for two and a half, three years um, because you're fighting, you're, you're tracing assets, you're, um, and some cases can go on for like two months. So it really depends um, from year to year. Right. Yeah. Right. And there, there are like so many but, uh, overlapping cases and stuff. Yeah, there are. So in one, so like in a divorce case, you can have a mental capacity um, act matter as well because if the wife suddenly loses her mental faculties, you need to take out a, a you know, a mental capacity um, order, and then someone will need to step in her shoes to to kind of act uh, on her behalf in the divorce proceeding. So some of them overlap. Some of them have multiple multiple aspects to the one case. Yeah. Right. Right. So um, we we have this very interesting question is like okay for example let's say when we talk about the division of the property right um does the behavior of one party um affect the division like um does does the uh, for example one 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 of the spouse has certain um behaviors that that affects the the division or the way that the court sees it what what are some of the case scenarios that you have seen mm. So everyone, this is like a standard question that I get asked, oh, right. you know, um, especially, okay, so there's two elements here. Um, behavior, like bad behavior, like what, you know, like adultery or unreasonable behavior and things like that, that is not going to change the division of the property. Um, some people are worried that it will, um, but bad behavior that will be penalized in the division of property um, are things like dissipation of funds. So if you're um, willfully and recklessly watering down the pool of assets, hiding, you know, transferring 300K to your girlfriend, spouse, I mean, not spouse, your girlfriend, your friend overseas, and then buying properties there, that's, of course, you're running it down so that your spouse can't have a fair division. So uh, if the lawyers can prove that... Um, you know, for example, 300,000 or, or even 10,000 or 1 million has been dissipated, you mm. add, you kind of like add it back to the pool. Uh, and it's a bit of an uh, artificial exercise because you need to 
firstly show prove that it's that amount and then um you add it back in the the spouse who has been dissipating the funds will obviously should get less because they've been behaving i mean they've they've been wantonly and and recklessly uh you know running down the funds so that's um one aspect that will get penalized and lack of disclosure if you're purposely not disclosing property documents and and all of that the court will look at at um and call it an adverse inference so they'll basically say that we are making an adverse inference because you have not disclosed the documents right right and um has there been any cases that you know families come to you and then after few rounds of consultation advice and stuff then they they decided not to proceed with the divorce and stuff like that like what what was some of the, the yes right you, you, you know have that? melvin this was my first case uh, and i was going to bring it up before because um that's actually what inspired me to keep going with family law because right. my first case was when i was getting you know into family law when i was a bit apprehensive a bit like no i don't want to do divorce first case uh, was a couple who um were fighting and fighting went for mediation and then we got we dissolved their marriage and then they came back to me i think like two weeks before i mean we got final judgment so we hadn't gotten final judgment and they said uh ceremony we have decided to reconcile <laughs> so um which is amazing which is great right. so of course you have to go and reverse the interim judgment you have to prove you know that and, right. and make the application but i have had cases like this i have right. had cases where parties you you sometimes they're just so angry and emotions are so high that they you know threaten divorce but when they rationally sit together with lawyers or even fa with, with family they realize that they can work through their differences so those are stories of hope that i always like to share with um, anyone that i i i can share my journey with because they're they they are really the success stories right yeah right right so so how how do you um how do you, how do you so call like train yourself i mean when uh, you have to I, i think on a daily basis most of your probably your your meetings are emotional or heated um because these are these mm. are such like sensitive matters when it comes to family so usually how how do you train yourself i mean with 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 skill sets to handle and and to have empathy and stuff like that you know you have to have empathy but at the end of the day um what family lawyers uh we are all trying to master this skill not to take on the emotional burden of the family we're here to be problem solvers and to to help you to navigate but we are not here to be your dumping ground of all your baggage and emotions so um lawyers family lawyers really have to learn to segregate the two in order to lead healthy lives because otherwise it just weighs you down i guess it's the same with doctors and counselors um because we are like their confidant their counselor sometimes they can talk to you for hours um so you have to learn to to have boundaries right yeah. right yeah i guess it's not easy as well and it really takes a lot of professionalism to to conduct your sessions and stuff like that right so uh yeah. do we have any questions first for sarah but i, I guess the amount of questions sh should be i, I think will be negligible because it's a sensitive topic so uh Once again, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, do we have a question? Let me see. Let me see. I think we have a question. Okay, so uh, we have a question coming in asking Sarah, how much do you charge for a letter of probate um, left without a will? 
do you want to answer your fee yeah. rates here or you want to take it offline? Um, no, you know what? Call call me up. I'll I think I in terms of the fee, just give me a call, um, Sarah May Thomas LLC, and and then I'll give you a quote because it really depends on uh the the situation. Who's right, right, right. I'll, yeah. I'll put in Sarah's uh, website down uh, later on the link below, and then you can contact her. Just PM her if you have any questions regarding to her services and fees. And of course, if you have any questions, you can go straight to Sarah. I think she'll be the best person to to answer your questions relating to. Yeah, so the website is there. All right, sarahmaythomaslc.com. So you, you name your firm yeah. directly under your full name. Yes, I did. <laughs> right, and, and, and um, one probably one last question before we let you go. So what, what inspired you to, to come out and start your own firm? I mean, like, rather than joining, let's say, a big firm and stuff like that? Mm. I guess um, I, having practiced in Australia, I have um, exposure to, you know, uh, law firms that can have good work-life balance. Um, and then coming to Singapore, where you have a very efficient uh, way of doing, running a law firm. So my idea was really to combine the both, the best of both worlds, where we can have right. work-life balance, still have very um, efficient uh legal practice so I, I guess when you've got a vision uh you, you just have to do it <laughs> and and start a trend and and do what you're passionate about and that's really why i decided to come out and um do my own thing yeah right so 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 uh and like us, what's the difference between uh working for a big law firm in australia versus working for a law firm in singapore what was the difference between the the, the work-life balance maybe share, share with us like how, how many hours do you you work in in Australia and stuff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, um, no, you, you know, know because I have clients, clients in Australia, um, and uh, I have clients that migrated there, and we're we're still managing their properties here. I mean, managing their mm -hmm. rental and their sale. And then they told me, like, you know, yeah. I have one client who works at a, a huge uh, manufacturing firm, and he says that at five p.m. the boss will. I mean, his 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 head of department would say, "Okay, everybody, <laughs> head over to the, yeah. the canteen," and then uh, they will start to have yeah. so, a beer and and stuff. And six o'clock, uh, everybody yeah, vanish, yeah. right? So yeah, yeah how's, how's work in Australia compared to here? Well, the end of the day is the end of the day. There's no calls at 10 p.m. and no weekend calls. I mean, it really is dependent on your firm. But overall, I would say end of the day is end of the day. Um, right. And yeah, I mean, I, I had rude culture shock when I moved to Singapore and the end of the day was not the end of the day. You leave at six and like, huh, half day? Why are you leaving at six? It's so early. <laughs> and I was like, you know, it's about, yeah. So there obviously were culture shocks with work and, and some firms in, not all, I mean, some people have a wrong impression that Australians are just drinking beer and sitting on the beach and having barbecues, which is not true. Um yeah. They work very hard. It's just that, like, I feel that with work-life balance, they do respect the end of the day and weekends and, and holidays and not really contacting you during um, non-office hours. So that's something that I wanted to instill in my own practice as well because right. I, um, I cherish these values. Yeah, right. lifestyle. Right. So, so these are some of the cultures that you built into your team and your firm. Yes. Absolutely. Right. All right. And the, the other thing is just, um, yeah, whether you're an intern or a trainee, uh, giving people that that place to vocalize how they feel about a case. I mean, I think everyone has to say something about something. So I think that's something that I always bring for whoever works with me. Right. It's great. It's good to hear. 
Right, and uh, okay, if you have just tuned in with us, unfortunately, we are ending uh, very soon. So I have with me Sarah May Thomas. Uh, she's a man managing director of her own firm specializing in family matters and divorce matters. And again, uh, she has her own podcast called The Legal Eagle. So the links will be down below. The replay episode for this uh, session will be at next week. It will also be available on our uh, Spotify and our Apple podcast channel as well because so far so good so head on to our channels to have a listen at today's episode that we have with sarah relating to uh, divorce matters and property distribution so sarah has been great uh, having you with us and uh, thank you for bearing with us with, with the technical difficulties and, and stuff like that um you have been amazing all good and, Right, and thank you for coming. I, I think it's, it's great that um, you, you shared all this information and your expertise with our audience because I think these are also important matters that a lot of people want to understand. So thank you so much and uh, you have a great day. And, uh, My pleasure. Yeah, we catch up. We catch up soon. Have a great day too. All Sounds right. good. Thank you so much, okay. Melvin. Have a Bye -bye. good one. Bye. Okay. Bye.